Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's coming up on the podcast. Do these flip-flops fit? What is the Ontario government doing about talking about extending the Christmas break for kids? Plus, your digital security, your data, is it being shared by tech giants? We're going to look into that. Let's get to it. Strap yourself in because we are in for a big bit of a ride. Think of it as you're getting on one of those super scary roller coasters. And you have to pull down all the safety, all the stuff, and make sure you keep your hands inside the car at all times. Because it's going to be a wild ride for the next hour. It's going to be a wild ride for the next months. We have such great news today, and I'm up, and then I'm back down again. I'm up because, of course, the news from Pfizer saying, hey, Moderna, suck on this. We can beat your 94 and a half. We got 95. You know, back and forth they go. It's all great news. And how's about this news? Health Minister Christine Elliott says Canada is going to receive 4 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine between January and March and 2 million of Moderna's vaccine. That's for Canada. Ontario is going to get 1.6 million of the Pfizer, 800,000 of Moderna. That is such great news. It's if if it passes its final hurdle, which it looks like it will, we will have 2.4 million doses of a vaccine for COVID-19 here in the province of Ontario by the first part of 20. 21. And that is great news. And then you think to yourself, wait a sec, there's 15 million of us. Uh-oh. What, are we going to have like some kind of Thunderdome issue there where we're just going to... There's a lot of things that we need to work on. And so that is what I'm talking about, about the up and down, the roller coaster of COVID emotions your stomach goes up and your stomach goes back down. Please keep your hands inside the car at all times. So you have good news on Pfizer and good news on Moderna. All of this optimism about a vaccine. And then it's pretty hard to be happy and ecstatic and over the moon when we're reported 32 new deaths in the province of Ontario in the last 24 hours. And I have just got to stop for one second here and talk about this issue that popped up again today, and this time in the House, in question period, at Queen's Park, about why the Minister of Health for this province, who puts out a tweet every single day that contains the information about case numbers, test numbers, so on and so forth, a bit of a breakdown, Why is it that the Minister of Health in that tweet does not include the number of deaths? And people have been pointing the finger at Christine Elliott about it. And there was actually a question in the House that said, well, why don't you put that in there? And I absolutely agree with Christine Elliott's response, which is that is not an issue that you put in a tweet. 32 more deaths! It's outrageous to to suggest that because that number is not in her tweet, somehow the government is trying to hide. I think, I mean, you know, there is a lot of legitimate reasons to have concerns about the COVID response and the planning from this provincial government. That's not one of them, folks. Let's just move along from that. That is just silly. Why didn't you put it in a tweet? 
because the the key numbers obviously that is a number we have to keep top of mind and and when you see 32 more deaths how much more evidence do you need that it's serious look at our hospitalizations up six ventilators up three fortunately icu uh, is uh, unchanged at 127 but again quickly approaching that 150 threshold where we have to start throttling back some kind of some of these scheduled surgeries that we have we have a hundred and new new school cases today three schools are currently closed which brings us to the big news the big news in Ontario the Minister of Education have put out has put out a statement saying he's consulted with the Chief Medical Officer of Health that's dr. David Williams and has determined that an extended winter holiday for kids is not necessary at this time. Wow. Suddenly, the roller coaster goes sharply to the right, and I got a bit of whiplash. Wow. I had some soft tissue injury over here. How did we get to this point? Why is it the Minister of Education is saying... We don't need to extend the winter holiday at this time. How did we get here? Well, it's because Mr. Lecce, who is very fond of talking in this corporate speak, managed to shove a whole lot of shoe leather down his gob yesterday. How do we get here? Let me play it for you. This is all a mop-up operation by the Ford government right here. This is what Stephen Lecce said 24 hours ago. We are uh, working with the Chief Medical Officer of Health um, when it comes to looking at any way we can further mitigate transmission school and ensure the second semester, January and beyond, remains safe. So I'm not in a position today um, to announce other than just to confirm I am seriously looking at solutions uh, that may include um, um, some period uh, out of class that allows for us to protect the gains we've made in this province uh, going into the second year. And we'll be able to report more substantively on that soon. That is Stephen Lecce yesterday with an absolute own goal for the government. What is he doing picking at his navel like that? Well, I'm just looking to see what I find in here. Oh, I just found a little bit of an extension of the Christmas holiday for, parent, for, for students. And as soon as he says that, every parent in the province is like, what? What do you, what do you mean? And what do you mean you're going to take a couple of weeks? I'll get back to you. You know, Stephen Lecce is going to sit down with Doc Williams. Well, that's going to be a fascinating conversation, is it not? And Stephen Lecce, we need to de-risk our circumstance. And then Williams says, yeah, the framework's the framework. I'm like, well, that's, that's solved that. <laughs> Go on our merry way. Well, as soon as Stephen Lecce muses about, well, maybe we'll extend the Christmas break, within like within like 90 minutes, Doug Ford is out there going, hold on, folks, let me get up my mop. Let's not confirm that until uh, the minister uh, sits down with the chief medical officer, then he'll be able to come out. So let's not let's not jump to conclusions because the two people that we can't understand are having a conversation. So that'll work out. So Mr. Lecce, Minister Lecce, has consulted with Doc Williams. And as I said, here is the statement. We have determined that an extended winter holiday is not necessary. Given Ontario's strong safety protocols, low levels of transmission, and safety within schools. And every parent is saying, well, 
thank goodness for that. However, still in here, in this statement, is we will still do whatever we need to do. So, yeah, it might be off the table right now in terms of musing as they try and, you know, all right, let's clean this mess up. Stephen Lecce spill on aisle four. But that doesn't mean it's off the table. It doesn't. Although what we see in other parts of the world, like what we see in the lockdown that has happened in Europe, is that there's been a much more severe lockdown than we've had, that we have now. But what they did is they committed to having schools open. So schools did not close. Difference between the early part of the pandemic and the second wave in Europe. And I think there's an expectation amongst parents that that is precisely what we will continue to do here. And I don't understand why you would even muse about this. I understand that directors of education and some school boards have said, you know, maybe a couple of extra days would be a good idea. You know what's going to happen with a couple of extra days over the Christmas holiday? You know what people are going to do? They're going to go on vacation. They're going to have play dates. They're going to get together. They're going to do things that public health is going to advise against. So extending the school holiday is a disaster in itself, not just from a child care point of view, but from a public health point of view. It doesn't make any sense. So why is our education minister musing about it? There was a question in the House today, and this is what, Stephen Lecce had to say about the safety and the, what the numbers, what the science tells us about what's going on in our schools right now. Our schools remain safe places for kids. The transmission is not happening within school, but fundamentally entering from community into our schools. And the data points, I think, need to um, inspire confidence in the population that 99.96% of students do not have COVID. The fact that of 4,800 schools, there are three close to the province. It only underscores that something special is happening in this province by the leadership of our frontline staff. Something special is happening. There's so much in there to mock. And I'm just going to, I'm going to try to move on, but <laughs> data points and something special. What are you talking about, man? No wonder, no wonder you're, sho- you're shoving your brogues down your gullet. You talk like, that. no wonder. But I, he makes a good point on the actual data. The data is showing that there is not widespread um, transmission in schools, but that does not mean there isn't tragedy. And Global News now just reporting, and this has just come out, and it's, it's tragic, and it's, you can see it on globalnews.ca right now, that a child and wor- youth worker at a Toronto school has died after contracting coronavirus. And the sources have confirmed this to Global News, and the source says that the person was an educational employee who worked with the Toronto Catholic District School Board. So, I mean, this is no joke. Transmission may be low in schools, but it does happen. So we have to be mindful of that. But wrap it all up in a bow as the as the car pulls back into the station. I hope you enjoyed your ride. Please exit to the left. Don't forget your belongings. I still come away with a little bit of a churned stomach, though. Up and down. 
whiplash. It's enough to make you nauseous. I don't think I'm going to line up for this ride again. Do you have a smart home device, one of those speakers in your house? I have one of them, and it just has crept into my life. It's not the kind of thing I really sought out or thought I'd go and get, but I got one, and now I shout at it to turn off the light, and I, I get it to do timers for when I, you know, I'm cooking or if I want to play a song, and it's it's very useful. And then I think to myself, that thing is listening to me. I brought in, I brought a microphone inside my house, and Jeff Bezos is spying on me. And somehow I can't, I still can't seem to get rid of it. Why is that? An, ex- an expected 6.4 billion smart home devices will be in the use in homes by the end of 2023. That's according to one study. And Google and Amazon pretty much publicly acknowledge that they're listening to you. Everybody's listening A new report shows that 80% of Americans think at least one tech giant is listening in on their conversations. And those percentages break down at 68% for Facebook, 53% for TikTok, Google at 45%. Weirdly enough, though, Facebook only, only 18% of people say they actually deleted Facebook as a result of that. So this is what I'm talking about. We all know we're being spied on and followed on information and our data is being collected by these tech giants, but yet it's like Brokeback Mountain. I can't, you know, I just can't quit you. Two-thirds of the respondents in this poll said they were targeted by a product or for a product on something that they'd never search for online. Have you noticed this? You just start talking to somebody about a windsurfer. This is me. I just, I'd start talking about some other, some toy I want, and next thing you know, why is it in my Instagram feed? I never search for this. You know, Stats Canada says that 57% of Canadians reported experiencing some kind of cybersecurity incident in 2018. 57% of us. And on Tuesday, the innovation minister in Canada, Navdeep Baines, announced something called a Digital Charter Implementation Act. Now, what it is, is if it is passed, it'll introduce new laws that are supposed to increase the protection of your personal information. If it passes, those tech giants could face big fines, up to $25 million for serious offenses, And the legislation would also give the Federal Privacy Commission or order-making powers, including the ability to force an organization to comply, order a company to stop collecting your data, so on and so forth. Is it going to really protect you and your data? Andy Best is CEO of something called Civic Digital Network and joins me on the line. Hi, Andy. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. Do you think the bill, as it was brought in, is going to protect our privacy? Well, it's a great first step. Uh, we definitely had to do a big overhaul and modernization of our privacy laws in Canada to keep up with all of the technology that is, has infused our lives in the way that you've mentioned just now. Um, but the argument that we're making at the Civic Digital Network is that privacy is a really important part of this data and digital issue that we face as a society. But there's a whole other layer deeper than that. There's a whole other uh, larger world of digital infrastructure that we need to have a national strategy for. 
Um, so we call that national data infrastructure, and it means that it recognizes that our country's economic and societal goals aren't going to be met without new frameworks. The privacy one is one slice of it, but that let us use data effectively for the public good. Um, so we have a variety of public infrastructures in our country, roads, bridges, railways, um, that underpin everything, our, our economy, our society, our democracy. Public and private activity can happen on these things, but there's no question here who sets the rules to ensure public benefit. On the roads, for example, it's the government. But for all the physical things that underpin our, our national success, there's a whole new world of digital infrastructure, um, and that's primarily emerged as the purview of the private sector, specifically the world's largest companies, uh, which use their data monopolies to push around our governments and, and stifle um, the opportunities of our homegrown uh, uh, technology sector. Um, so what we're trying to do uh, at the Civic Digital Network with our national data infrastructure work is to reclaim the public sector's role. We want to help our governments get back on the horse in terms of governance and policy and stimulus to create responsible public and private sector activity um, as it relates to data. Isn't the horse out of the barn on that, though? I mean, these are giant, enormous companies. And what can Canada, what could the Canadian government really do about it? Yeah, well, look, we have to, I mean, the horse is out of the barn, but if we want to give up, we may as well all go back to bed, right? Like, we still have to try. Um, and so it's important to realize that there's still time, um, and Canada is small. You know, we're a, we're a very tiny actor relative to these huge uh, global multinationals, but we have to make up for our size by being clever. Um, and so we feel like our national data infrastructure framework is the way that we can start to claw back um, uh, uh, public oversight over these infrastructures that are already shaping our society. We saw this in in, uh, in Toronto with the Sidewalk Labs Keysight project. That happened in a vacuum, you know. And we had a uh, we had a, a private company that was essentially trying to set the rules for what can and can't happen in public spaces. We would never let a paving company tell us what should be in the asphalt mix in the road. No, that's regulated. So what we're trying to do is provide the framework for us to get our heads around the totality of this issue, which cuts across every single one of our economic sectors. It undermines our democracy. It stifles our uh, our innovation economy here in Canada. Um, so Canada does have a shot, but we have to properly define the problem and we have to get working on it. We don't really get a say in this, but if you did, if we did have a say in it, would we say that Facebook, Google, these other giants, that they should be broken up? Well, you know, I think when you, when you think back to what the original intention of antitrust laws were, you know, uh, uh, back in the day, we understand that when things get too big, uh, when they become too powerful, they can have uh, horrible impacts on society. And I don't think there's any question. Um, that Google and Facebook and the gang um, have had very detrimental impacts on our society. They've, they've undermined our democratic institutions. They've uh, taken wealth out of our country. Um, you know, we have a perception um, of, of where value comes from in our society. And we, we very often, it used to come from physical things, you know, oil resources, that kind of thing, not other natural resources. But the reality is that the future source of value um, in in the new global economy is uh, what's called intangibles, data, intellectual property, these things that you can't necessarily reach out and touch or, or scoop out of the ground, um, but which do uh, but which do um, 
uh, represent the largest uh, sources of value and power. So there's absolutely no question that as a country, we need a national approach to, to reclaiming um, the public sphere as it relates to data and digital infrastructure, because we know the results of this. If we, if, we, if we continue down this path, we see what's happening to our democracies and to our economy. And it's important to remember that uh, not doing anything about this, you know, accepting the status quo and saying, well, we're just not going to change it, that that's a decision too, right? So we're trying to say no action is a decision, and that's not one that we want to make. So we're presenting a framework uh, by which our governments can finally start to reclaim uh, their rightful uh, regulatory and governance role. I'm speaking with Andy Best, who is the CEO of Civic Digital Network. And uh, Andy, I'm always interested to see various levels of government make promises about rural bra- broadband and uh, extending the internet to uh, other parts of the country. And of course, this has got added impetus now during a pandemic when we're all thinking, "Well, why am I living in Toronto? I, I'm going to. I want to go and live in." New Brunswick, or I want to go and live somewhere, you know, uh, on the edge of Algonquin Park. But, of course, the reality is we have to have some kind of Internet access to make our lives work. And if that's not there, then we're not going to move there. Here, Here's my point about it, is that we seem to talk about this infrastructure and putting our money on the infrastructure, and yet we don't put the kind of emphasis on these big tech giants and regulating how they use our data. And it's almost as if the public purse is saying, you know, we're going to build a railroad across the nation, but you, Facebook, only you are allowed to make the locomotives and the cars, and you get to choose how much you charge to get on. And we have just surrendered all the rest of it while saying, well, we're going to build an Internet backbone, but we're not going to regulate those companies that then operate on that backbone. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Alan. And if you're ever looking for a new gig, the Civic Digital Network, uh, you know, you seem to have some interesting alignment. Um, So I agree with you completely. Um, We have ceded our traditional role to these companies, and it's having a very detrimental impact on our society. Um, To your point about about internet access, you know, we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time here. Um, Like, it's all well and good for me to talk about you know, esoteric things like digital infrastructure, but you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, you know, large portions of our country um, uh, don't have access to reliable internet, right? And that is a that is an economic and a social uh, a drag. And so we have to be able to um, work on our uh, physical infrastructure as it relates to broadband at the same time as we are um, tackling the macro level problem of how to help our governments and our companies succeed in this new digital economy. Andy, a great conversation. I really appreciate you coming on today. It's Andy Best, CEO of Civic Digital Network. Thank you. So much news in COVID-19 on the local front right now. Not only do we have news about the amount of vaccine doses that we are scheduled to get here in Ontario in the first couple of months, of 2021, somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.4 million doses between Moderna and Pfizer. We have more news from Moderna, or pardon me, more news from Pfizer, pardon me, today. Uh, That's all great news. And then, of course, we also have the provincial government saying, well, no, we're not going to extend 
the Christmas break for kids. Just because we talked about possibly doing that yesterday, now it is apparently off the table. To get a sense of where we are with all of this, I am pleased to welcome to the program Matthew Otten, who is an infectious disease specialist at the Jewish General Hospital. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Alan. How are you? I'm good. I started the day, I think, on a high, like a lot of us did, with this Pfizer news, and now we have news of the amount of doses that we're going to get. What's your takeaway from what you heard from Pfizer today? Uh, It's, I mean, building on their good uh, news from last week, and on top of Moderna's announcement from uh, Monday, I mean, it's starting to seem real that we have good data that these vaccines are even sort of exceeding reasonable expectations in terms of their effectiveness, particularly when it comes to uh, preventing severe disease, which is, uh, you know, if this data gets uh, uh, fully borne out, you know, in wider scale use, this is uh, going to be massively useful in terms of protecting our population. You know, it doesn't answer the subsequent issues, you know, which is it's going to be all about the logistics of it's one thing to have the doses sitting in freezers. It's another thing to get them out in a timely fashion to the right people uh, to be able to administer them, you know, to the sort of uh, groups at highest need, because this isn't going to happen instantaneously. This is going to be a massive logistics exercise that I think is going to challenge uh, governments across this country and uh, around the world. Yeah, I pointed out at the beginning of the program is, you know, obviously it's great news that Ontario is scheduled to receive 2.4 million doses if these two vaccines are approved by Health Canada. But keep in mind, there are 14.5 million people in this province. So the logistics and choosing, you know, where the vaccine goes first, that is going to be very tricky. The headline I saw yesterday, which I thought put it well, is that the scientists, the researchers, the uh, pharmaceutical companies that have been developing the vaccine, these vaccines, they've done their part, and now this is really going to put to the test both the, uh, I guess, to a certain extent, public health, but to a larger extent, the logistics abilities of provincial governments uh, to be able to sort of uh, carry the load for the next step, which is getting the vaccines into the arms of uh, the population. For some people looking at the provincial government here, that is not great news because there are some concerns about not just messaging, but also public health. And I want to touch on a couple of these things, if I might, Matthew. And let's begin with the government now saying, well, we don't believe that there's a necessity to extend the school break at Christmas. Uh, After saying yesterday, well, we're thinking about it, that's a possibility. What's your reaction to that? I mean, you know, this is uh, sort of commentary from me being an outside observer, you know, not involved in these uh, decisions at that kind of level. Sometimes I wonder whether these ideas are floated as a so-called test balloon to sort of see the reaction, to see, you know, what the initial criticism are to be able then to subsequently refine the message and perhaps address some of those uh, those uh, concerns. You know, there's... Um, in, you know, the Ontario provincial government has now said as of today that they don't think they're going to do that. In Quebec, uh, where I'm based, it's still up in the air. They're sort of floating these ideas of uh, numbers for uh, that would be acceptable for Christmas get-togethers. They're still considering this idea of extending Christmas break by a couple of weeks, and no firm decision has been made. And I mean, it's good to be able to sort of see the potential reaction and figure out how are you going to message because we've all seen problems 
repeatedly with messaging during this uh, pandemic. At the same time, we're in the middle of November now. Uh, you know, these decisions have a lot of impact on how people are going to plan for their activities, for their work, for childcare. There's a hundred different things. And, you know, we've got to have decisions made. So therefore we can sort of try to plan our lives around those decisions. So it's, uh, it's getting time to, I guess, fish or cut bait. The medical officer of health for Ontario mused earlier this week about, you know, potentially having zones or hot zones into a green moving into green in time for Christmas. And that has just, there's been a furor over that, that just the suggestion of that was, is just not going to happen. Looking at the data, both in Quebec and in Ontario, is a green, as in green category Christmas, even a possibility? Um, I mean, my, uh, you, you point your, you put your finger on that quite correctly that, uh, there was a lot of, I guess, uh, pushback on that uh, message, you know, including from the minister of health. And, uh, I think that would be very optimistic given the remarkable high and sustained numbers of community, uh, cases that we've seen on a daily basis now for several weeks in both provinces. I really wouldn't expect there to be a drastic change, except if we were to embark on a really uh, serious, uh, multifaceted approach to trying to get these numbers down. I think it's... You mean lockdown. You mean lockdown. uh, Yeah. So, you know, similar to what we did in the springtime, right? At the end of the day, nothing fundamental has changed about this virus. Nothing fundamental has changed about the population, except that uh, we are all tired with very good reason. But we were able to do this before. You know, one of the big numbers, which I think really speaks to uh, why we're seeing the sustained transmission uh, in the numbers of new cases per day in both Ontario and Quebec, is you look at the numbers of contacts that public health has to trace, right? Back in the initial wave in the spring, on average, it was something around 10 people, 10 contacts per new case, whereas this time it's much higher. It's in the 30s, it's in the 40s. And of course, so not only does that make the job of public health a lot harder, that also means that instead of 10 chances to pass the virus per new case, there's 30 or 40. So no wonder these numbers in the community are high and staying high if we're not really reducing our close face-to-face contacts as well as we were back in the springtime. But if you know, we're moving into a period where it's predictable there's going to be higher transmission because colder weather means more time indoors in poorer ventilated areas and in closer proximity. So if we don't get things under control by taking you know, further effective action now, then we're heading into the problems that we're already seeing in some hospitals in the Peel region, in uh, hospitals in, uh, in uh, Regina now, and uh, their ICU is uh, overflowing. Uh, you know, I think there's some hospitals in Manitoba that are starting to report the same thing. And this is you know, not going to get better. It's going to get worse unless we actually uh, try to take effective action now. Matthew Otten is an infectious disease specialist at Jewish General Hospital in Montreal. Always great having you on the program, Matthew. Really appreciate it. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me back. And did you hear what the good dog had to say there? We got to take some action now. And so th- this is comes back to some questions, some very serious questions about the provincial table here. Because what do we know about a lockdown? 
What do we know about what it's going to take to put us into a lockdown? If all the experts, including Dr. Brown, who is the number two pretty much at the health table underneath Dr. Williams, has said, if we want to get cases down, if we want to relieve what's going on in the hospitals, that we need further restrictions. And those restrictions have not been implemented yet. And all we know is that we're working on trying to figure out what is the criteria for a lockdown. When asked about it, Dr. Williams will just answer with questions of his own, you know, does that mean school is closed? Does it not mean school is closed? Does it mean, you know, the sky is blue? Does it mean the sky is green? And no answers other than, well, you know, this is something we better answer soon. It's the same with Christmas. So right now we don't have a lockdown. So we, we're not doing that. And we have Dr. Williams musing about a potential, you know, green category Christmas. And if you're like me, you're thinking, well, I'm not calling off Christmas because it doesn't look that, you know, Doc Williams doesn't say I have to. So maybe I'm making some plans. And once those plans get going, you know, missiles get in the air. I think right now we need to communicate to people about what they need to be thinking about for Christmas much more clearly. Because missiles are in the air, and next thing you know, you gotta, you know, you got to call your aunt and say, yeah, we're not coming after all. And that's a lot harder to do than not making those plans in the first place. That is the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch The Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.